Good evening. It was four years ago that I was invited here to speak. I'm a little upset that it took four years to get invited back. Actually, I wasn't invited back. I called and asked, could I come? They told me, no, you're not good enough. I begged, uh, I begged the president. I said, I really would like to come back. He said, well, you know, we only have the best here at Masters. And um, so you, you practice. So, I, you know, I practiced and did a little better. Sent him a tape, as a matter of fact. They said, well, we listened to the tape, Evans, and you're definitely, definitely getting better. But, you know, this is John MacArthur territory up here. So you, you just can't be better. You just got to be good. I said, well, look, just give me a few more weeks. I'll practice some more. So I practiced some more and sent another tape. I said, can I come? They said, no, well, we, we listened to the second tape. It's definitely better than the first one. But you're just not, not ready yet. I said, gee, I, I'll come for free. They said, now you're ready. So I'm <laughs> glad to be here. And uh, Now, it is a, it is a joy. I am a great admirer of your president and my good friend, uh, John MacArthur. Uh, in fact, next Sunday he'll be preaching in our church. Guess he didn't have anything to do after he came back from Russia, but uh, he'll he'll be speaking in Dallas to us, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Our fellowship is uh, sweet every time we get together, and I'm also excited about the biblical worldview that you are gaining in this institution, and we are trusting God to make a difference in your life, so that He can make a difference through your life in a world that desperately needs quality Christian leadership. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, would you allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable unto you? Forgive me of any impurity that would prohibit your word from going forth in power. May I be clear, may I be accurate, may I be bibliocentric, and may you allow those things I share to be impactful in the lives of these students. In Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit ago, uh, I had a problem in my house, in my bedroom, where there was a, a crack that appeared in the plaster of my wall. And of course, in Southern California, you know a lot about cracks and plasters and all that stuff. But there was a crack in the plaster on my wall, and it desperately needed to be fixed, so I called a painter. And I said, would you please come and fix this crack on my wall? He said, certainly. He came out, removed the old plaster, replastered it, repainted it. It looked brand new. I was happy. He was happy. I paid him. He went home. All was well. The only problem, however, was that a month later, the crack reappeared. I was a little put off because I'd already paid him. So I called him back up. I said, look, you didn't do a good job. Would you please come back and fix the plaster on my wall? He came back and uh, he redid it. I was happy, he was happy, he went home. Forty-five days later, however, the crack reappeared. This time with its nieces, nephews, uncles, aunts, cousins. There were cracks all over the place, just a whole plethora of cracks. And I was just uh, really upset. I figured I needed me a new painter. 
So I called another guy and said, would you please come and fix this crack on my wall? He came out, took a look and said, sir, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I didn't quite understand that. He said, I, I, I can't help you. I said, why can't you help me? He said, because the problem is not the crack on your wall. I didn't really understand that. I looked at the walls for the crack. I looked at him and said, I see a crack, you see a crack. All God's children see a crack. There's a crack on that wall. He said, well, there is a crack on that wall, but that's not your problem. So what do you mean? He says, your problem is, is a shifting foundation. He said, you see, in this Texas heat, in the summertime, the foundation moves. You can't feel it, you can't see it, but you know it's moved because there's a crack on your wall. He took me to the bathroom door and showed me how it wouldn't close very easily. He said, problem's not your door, you have a shifting foundation. He said, sir, I don't want to take your money. But until you get this foundation straight, you'll always have cracks on your wall. I never forgot that because it became a great reminder of the world in which you and I live today. There are cracks all over the place. Moral cracks, marital cracks, psychological cracks, political cracks, on and on and on and on. And our world is spending a lot of time and energy to fix the cracks on our wall. When the real problem that we face today in the world in which we live is a shifting foundation. And until that foundation has been stabilized, the cracks will forever and ever be on the wall, ugly, tragic, and getting bigger all the time. Now, if Jesus Christ comes back, we don't have to worry about these cracks. We'll be delivered from them. But what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't come back for another 100, 200, 500 years? Then we best better be concerned about those cracks on the wall. The reason why is because you're going to raise families in this world. You're getting an education in order to get into a career in this world. And the question is, what kind of world are you going to find and what kind of world are you going to help make? Sometimes when I talk to the evangelicals, they say, well, let's not worry about that. Let's not worry about making the world a better place because, after all, men and seducers are going to grow worse and worse. Things are going to get bad. And, you know, why spend all of that energy trying to affect change in this world? Why polish brass on a sinking ship? My response, same reason you jog, even though you know you're going to die. I mean, the reality of death should produce better medical care, better health care, better hospital care, better technology. What kind of world are we going to give our children? I'd like to submit to you that the issue that we face today in terms of solidifying the foundation, is not trying to fix sinners. Sinners are supposed to sin. If you're born in sin, shaped in iniquity, all by nature the children of wrath, sin is what you do. Now granted, some can do it better than others. But sinners sin. 
The great tragedy that we face is that the saints who are not supposed to look like the sinners who sin are often more sinful than the sinning sinners who sin. We suffer from a case of what I call spiritual AIDS. Of course, AIDS is a breakdown in the immune system. It's where the immune system can't fight back and colds become pneumonia. You're susceptible to the bacteria and viruses in the air. Well, we have a cultural kind of AIDS because God has placed a mechanism in history called the church whose job it is is to act as God's immune system for the culture so that even though the bacteria and viruses of sin plague the culture, they should not bring it into cultural disease because the immune system is working so well. And that the Christian influence on society is so strong because of a biblical presence in history that the bacteria and viruses of evil are never able to have the final say. We're like a spiritual ozone layer that gives us a protective covering from the sun, but if the chemicals deplete the ozone layer and gaping holes go through that layer, then the, the, the harmful effects of the sun begin to penetrate and we become more susceptible to disease. Well, what we're seeing is, are the harmful rays of the SON penetrating our culture as God withdraws in accordance with Romans chapter 1 and all manner of hideousness invades the culture. And so your commitment to Jesus Christ, your commitment to text, technical excellence, marriage, to spiritual responsibility is critical not only for yourselves, but in the world in which you will live and work and raise families if Christ be not come. The great challenge today is for Christians to be Christian. We have watched as Christians have wanted the non-Christian world to make this place a better place to live. One of the great items that Christians have run to is politics. The white church has been heavily dependent upon the Republican Party to bring in a mecca of moral reform. The black church has been very dependent upon the Democratic Party to bring in a sense of social reform. Well, I'd like to submit to you that God doesn't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. Uh, like Joshua 5, when, uh, you know, Joshua's getting ready to go into battle, He's getting ready to go into battle, and uh, he ran into this captain. The captain was dressed in battle array. Joshua's mama ain't raised no dummy. He said, whose side are you on? Because if you're on their side, then, then i got to think twice about going into battle. But if you're on our side, then your army's going to help us. We can win. So whose side are you on? The man looked at him and said, you're thoroughly confused. I am captain of the Lord's army. I did not come to take sides. I come to take over. And that's God's perspective. God's perspective is not to denigrate himself with the methodologies of this world order, but to create his own order through his own people. Matthew 5 summarizes in two analogies your role in history right now. In the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount spoken by Christ, in, three ver in four verses, he sums up the role of the disciple in the culture. 
You are the salt of the earth. Verse 13 says. And then verses 14 through 16 give the second analogy. You are the light of the world. In the Greek text, the you is in the emphatic position. He literally is saying, you alone, you and nobody else. In other words, talking to his disciples as his primary audience, he says, the world is going to take shape based on you. Not based on the political parties, not based on the social movements. You are the salt of the earth. The issue is not what sinners do. The issue is what saints do. And when you see the decline in the culture, it's not because sinners are doing a better job sinning. It's because saints are doing a poor job being saints. Christianity today is like the Susan B. Anthony dollar. You know, they came out with this feminine representation in the modern currency system. And... Uh, so they wanted to have a female presence, but not many people caught on to the Susan B. Anthony. And the reason they didn't is because it looked too much like a quarter. It had the size of a quarter, and, and, and it was too much trouble to distinguish, so people weren't using it. To a large degree, that's what Christianity is today. We're worth a dollar, but we look like a quarter. We have high value, but often spend like chump change. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now this analogy was very critical in Jesus' day because salt was a preservative. It is today, but it was much more then because they didn't have refrigeration. They, they didn't have the coolant, freonic systems that we possess today to keep foodstuffs for an extended period of time. So one of the ways they would do it was salt meat down. They would salt it down. And the salt would act as an antibacterial agent, as a repellent, keeping the bacteria from deteriorating the meat. In fact, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. They would get their check or their, or their, their, their money, and then they would get bags of salt. And if a Roman soldier didn't do a good week's worth of work, his ration of salt would be cut back. That's where we get the phrase that so-and-so is not worth their salt. They have not lived up to expectations. Jesus says, you are salt of the earth. Now, please don't misread that. He did not say you're salt of the church. You are salt of the earth. He postures this world as a decaying piece of meat. And he says, if it's going to be preserved, you're it. You are it. The issue that we face today is what will the Christian community do? What will this generation do, who emerge in the name of Jesus Christ to be salt in a decaying culture. He says, you're it. In uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities who were on their way out, God said, I'm going to judge you. Abraham said, God, you can't do that in Genesis 18. You can't destroy these cities. Now, when you tell God he can't do something, you need to know what you're talking about. Say, you can't do that. God says, I pray tell why not, Evan's translation. He says, because shall not the judge of the earth do right. You can't destroy the righteous with the wicked. You can't treat us like the ungodly. Well, what do you suggest, Abe? 
Well, why don't you let me run to town and find 50 righteous? If I, if I go to town and find 50 righteous, will you accept him as a down payment on the culture? In other words, if I can find 50 people who will do this thing your way, according to your will, will you accept their righteousness as sufficient enough not to destroy the wicked because of their wickedness? God says you got a deal. If you go find 50 righteous for the sake of the 50, I will spare the 500,000. Well, Abraham went. Came back and said, what about 45? Why? Because he couldn't find 50. Went back again. What about 40? Went back again. What about 30? Went back again. What about 20? Finally got down to 10. He said, look, look, God, if I find 10 folk who will do this thing your way, will you, for the sake of the 10, save the half a million people living in these two twin cities in the plain? God says, if you find 10, I will save the city they said, don't go any lower than 10, because even I have my minimum quota. 10 is as low as we go. So now, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? It wasn't just destroyed because it was full of homosexuality and debauchery and all manner of evil. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because Abraham couldn't find 10. Now, he did have a good preacher in town named Lot. Lot was an okay guy, because the New Testament says that Lot's righteous soul was vexed at the unrighteousness in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot suffered from the disease, the American disease, of personal peace and affluence. He was living for his business, his world. He didn't understand that God had allowed him to go there to be a down payment in the culture for the kingdom. And as a result, he was okay. He just didn't influence anybody else. In fact, starting with his own family. Because his sons-in-laws laughed when he tried to get them to leave. His two daughters and wife left. But on their way out, his wife started thinking about Saks, Bloomingdale's, Neiman Markup. And she turned into a pillar of salt. He had an incestuous relationship with his two daughters. If he would have just won his own family, that would have made six. If each one of them would have won one, that would have made twelve. Abraham would have found ten. Sodom and Gomorrah would still be on the map. You see, those two cities deteriorated because there was no presence to which God could appeal. And if Christ be not come, if we want to salvage our culture, it's not about who's in the White House. It's about what the church is doing. It's about being the people of God. You are the salt of the earth, not the salt of the shaker. I'm from Dallas, and just in case you didn't know, the home of the world champion, Dallas Cowboys. Now, it really doesn't matter if you don't like that because we won. And uh, 70,000 people did not pay $50 a ticket to watch the Cowboys huddle. That was not their interest. They wanted to see what difference the huddle makes. They wanted to know, having huddled, could they now score? They wanted to know... Could this team do in public the play they called in private? The great tragedy in contemporary evangelicalism is we call great plays in private but have poor performance in public. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If this earth is going to be salvaged, 
if the place where you live, work, play, and raise a family and express your career is going to be salvaged, it won't be because you elect the right person. It will be because you are the right person. And you are representing the interest of the kingdom in the sphere in which God has given you. And by the way, Saul does something else. It creates thirst. When I was at the airport, I ordered a, a drink, that is a Coke. And uh, they brought me the Coke. And then the lady did something very interesting. She put right beside the Coke a little bowl of peanuts and pretzels. Now, she didn't give me those because she felt sorry for me. In fact, there was no charge to those peanuts and pretzels. The reason she did that is because they were full of salt. And she understood that after I paid for the Coke, if I put my hand in that jar and began chewing on those peanuts and pretzels, the salt would coagulate with my taste buds, dry out my mouth, and I would come back up and reach into my pocket and say, give me another Coke. The reason that they get peanuts and pretzels is for one reason alone, and that is to create thirst. You are the salt of the earth. Your job and my job is to create thirst in the culture so that we can then turn around and offer it the living water. You alone are the salt of the earth. You're it. And anything that you want preserved in this culture must be preserved by Christians or it will never be preserved at all. So when you talk about the deterioration of your city, your state, it has to do with the failure of Christians to be Christian. And so the world has taken over, and we are seeing its results. Uh, he says, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. He now introduces a concept that is quite interesting of saltless salt. Now, chemically speaking, there's no such thing as saltless salt, because salt is a solid compound. The only thing that makes salt salt is the sodium chloride in salt, so that if you, in order for salt to become saltless, you'd have to extract out of it the only thing that made it salt in the first place, and if you did that, it would no longer be saltless salt, it would be no salt at all, because the only thing that made it salt would no longer be in the salt, so that you could even call it salt. Let me repeat that. So, no, I'm just kidding. But what does Jesus mean by saltless salt? If the salt loses its taste. Well, the expression is understood when he uses the phrase trodden under the foot of men. See, over the Middle East, all the rules are flat. And they don't have porches, patios, and verandas like we have here. So the rooftop is a great place for socialization. Even in biblical days, when Peter wanted to have his devotions, he went up to the rooftop to pray. The rooftop was where a lot of trotting of the foot occurred, or walking. Even today, wedding receptions are held on Jewish rooftops. Kids play on Jewish rooftops, and of course, wars are waged from the rooftop. What Jesus is saying is that when they began to walk on the roof, they would punch holes in the roof after so long, and it needed to be patched. And the way they would patch it is they would take gypsum in water and stir it, thicken it with pouring in a whole slew of salt so that it became this thick paste, like a tar. 
They would plaster it on the roof. The sun would bake it and harden it so that now you could trodden your foot on it again, walk on it. The only problem is that when you mix salt with gypsum, the salt becomes salt, saltless. Not because it loses its sodium chloride, it becomes saltless because gypsum is bitter. And the bitterness of the gypsum overpowers the saltiness of the salt so that the salt is good for nothing except to be walked on. You are the salt of the earth. But if you are not salty, then you are good for nothing because the gypsum of this world, when mixed with the salt of Christianity, will make Christianity only good to be walked on. And today the world is walking on the church. And it is walking on the church because instead of being the unique, distinct people of God, we have mixed up ourselves with their political order. We've mixed up ourselves with their social order. We've mixed up ourselves with their worldview. And as a result, their bitterness has overcome our saltiness so that we're good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot. Fundamentally, Christians don't know who they are. We talk about the unbelieving, ungodly world as though they call the last shot. Suppose Michael Jordan, when he was playing, went over to the coach and said, Coach, will you please tell that other team to leave me alone? Every time I go dribble a ball down the floor, they keep trying to take it. Tell them don't do that. And every time I go up to shoot, they keep putting their hands in front of my face so I can't see. Tell them don't block my shots like that. The coach would say, Mike, we don't pay you $5 million a year for them to leave you alone. We pay you $5 million a year so that having bothered you, when they try to steal the ball, you dribble it under your legs, around your back, over your shoulder, you take it down the court, and when they put their hands up in front of your face, you go up in the air, around the backside of the backboard, come out the other side and dunk it in spite of that. We pay you to show how good you are when there are five other men daring you to do what you plan to do. That's what makes you great. God has handed us as Christians the gospel ball. Don't blame the world if it tries to swipe it from us. Our job is to dribble it down the court of history, under our legs, around our backs, over our shoulder, and when we go up, if they try to block it, to keep it up high enough so that we can dunk it for the kingdom of God. That is what God has called us to. So the issue is not making the world a better place. The issue is, is us being a better people. The implications on the world will be staggering. You are the light of the world. His second analogy. The last time I checked, a light only has one goal, to shine. That's all it does. Shine. Remember, in the Greek construction, it's emphatic. You alone are the light of the world. You plus nobody else. Now that presupposes that the world is in abysmal darkness. That presupposes that the world has been blinded and it does not see. If the world is dark, you can't argue it into being light. That's your job. That's my job. As you prepare for your purpose for the kingdom of God through this educational institution, 
God is not calling you to just be a doctor. He's calling you to be God's representative in the Bar Association. So the Bar Association gets to see what God looks like when God helps hurting people. He's not calling you just to be a lawyer. He's calling you to be his representative in the Bar Association. So the Bar Association gets to see what God looks like when God tries the case. He's not calling you just to be a, 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 a business person. He's calling you to be God's representative in business so the business community sees what God looks like when God operates in that sphere. He says, you're the light. Don't claim that sinners are dark. They are dark. Look, this is a pretty enclosed area. If we turned off all the lights and it was pitch black, it would be chaos. Because we'd be bumping in each other, bumping, in, uh, bumping into the chairs. We'd be bumping into the piano. We'd be bumping into the stands. Simply because nobody can see. However... If I pull out a flashlight in the midst of that chaos and darkness and turn on the light, guess what? I now run the show. When it's pitch black and you're the only one with the light, you call the shots. If I would turn on the flashlight, they would say, there, there, there he is. Follow him. He can show us the way whoever... Established. Where do you find them? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for all good works. Paul tells Timothy the scripture is so comprehensive, so complete, that it covers all the works you're supposed to do. In other words, good works are biblical goals achieved through biblical means. Non-Christians can have biblical goals, but non-Christians do not use biblical methods. And that is the thing that distinguishes the Christian's impact in the world. He does things not only that reach biblical goals, but he uses biblical processes to get there. It's like uh, we had a boy who stole $1,500 and, uh, from his boss. And they caught him, and they were going to lock him up for three years at $18,000 a year for stealing $1,500. Taxpayers would have to pay $18,000 a year for three years. We went down to the court. We said, Your Honor, if you will give the kid back to us, we will get him a job, garnish his wages, pay back the guy he stole from, save the taxpayers $18,000 a year, get one of the men of our church, make, him a, make a male mentor for him to hold him accountable and to give him a new code of ethics for living, and in six months, we will show you a brand new kid, because the kid had been repentant. We'll show you a brand new kid. Well, the judge didn't have any room in juvenile anyway, so he gave him back to us. We gave him a job, garnished his wages, paid back the $1,500, uh, had him pay back $1,500, saved the taxpayers $18,000, had a male mentor from the church, being a father to the fatherless, which is what the Bible means by that. It doesn't mean God is a floating father. It means he works through the, the men of God to provide surrogate fathering for the children of God. And so what he does, so, so we provided him a male mentor, and we went through that process. We showed him a brand new kid in six months. Two weeks later, the judge calls me back and says, will you take 20 more? And that is precisely how it's supposed to work. The world should be coming to the church for answers. Instead, we're worried about what the world is going to do to make things better for us. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine in such a way. You make the difference. You see, look, 
If you're a messed up person and you have a family, you're a messed up Christian. And you have a family, you're going to help make up a messed up family. Now, if you're a messed up person making a messed up family and your family goes to church, then your family is going to help create a messed up church. But watch this now. If you're a messed up individual helping to make a messed up family leading to a messed up church and your church is supposed to be the light to the neighborhood, you're going to have a messed up neighborhood. But hold it. If you're a messed up individual leading to a messed up family causing a messed up church, which means you're going to have a messed up neighborhood and your neighborhood's in the city, well, then you're going to have a messed up city. But watch it. If you're a messed up individual leading to a messed up family that leads to a messed up church that results in a messed up neighborhood leading to a messed up city in your cities and the state, then don't be surprised that you have a messed up state. But hold it. If you're a messed up individual that has a messed up family resulting in a messed up church causing a messed up neighborhood leading to a messed up city that now is a messed up state in your states in the country, well, you're going to have a messed up country. But that's not all. If you're a messed up individual leading to a messed up family causing a messed up church leading to a messed up neighborhood resulting in a messed up city leading to a messed up state leading to a messed up country and your country's in the world, you're going to have a messed up world. So if you want a better world composed of better countries made up of better states inhabited by better cities composed of better neighborhoods illumined by better churches made up of better families, you've got to start by becoming a better Christian. And to do that means you must be light and salt. Men must be able to see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's critical. Glorify your Father. In other words, it is clear from what you do, you are doing this under divine permission. That God is out in front. The mayor of Dallas called me up, former mayor of Dallas. She said, uh, Dr. Evans, will you come down and open up the city council meeting in prayer? I said, yes, Ms. Mayor, I'll be glad to. She says only one thing. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, don't mention Jesus. Because we have Jews and atheists and agnostic, and we don't want to offend anybody. Keep a generic God. Well, I went down there. I said, they introduced me. I said, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, the city council has invited me here to act on their behalf to consult you about their decision-making ability today. Since I can only assume that they seriously want me to reach you, and since there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, I cannot achieve what they've asked me to do unless I include him. And so in honor of their request, I come through Christ to you today. First of all, I thank you for creating the council. And according to Colossians 1, everything that was made was made by Christ Jesus. I thank you for creating government. Because in Romans 13, according to Paul the Apostle who met Jesus on the Damascus Road, government is an institution of God. Now, if there are any council people here that don't understand that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, bodily rose from the dead, and is physically coming back again, I pray you'll explain that to them sometime today. Bless their decision-making today in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you don't want to hear about Jesus, don't invite me. 
My job is not to apologize. My job is not to, to, to water things down. We'll let the ungodly and the carnal take care of that. My job is to shine. And so is yours. That's our job. That's what the Lord's prayer is all about. Our Father, I want to let you know who you are. I know who you are. You're my daddy. Who art in heaven. I want to let you know I not only know who you are, but where you live. You live in heaven. Now that I know who you are and where you live, I know what I'm supposed to do. Get on my knees and hollow be your name. Now, if I know who you are, my daddy, where you live in heaven, what I'm supposed to do, hollow be your name. I've got to reconfigure my whole worldview so that thy and not my kingdom comes. In order for that to happen, I've got to reconfigure my schedule so that thy and not my will is done. Now, in order for me to hollow your name, service your kingdom, and do your will, what I ask you to do is give me enough fat, starches, carbohydrates, and protein so that I have the physiological energy to hollow your name, service your kingdom and do your will. And then forgive me for the things I've done against you as I forgive those who've done things against me because if I don't forgive those who've done things against me, you won't forgive me who's done things against you. And if you don't forgive me who's done things against you, you won't accept me hollering your name, servicing your kingdom, or doing your will. And don't leave me in any temptation I can't handle a day because if you leave me in any temptation I can't handle a day, I'm going to embarrass your name, embarrass your kingdom, and embarrass your will. And the only reason I'm praying any of this in the first place is because thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's got nothing to do with you. Our job is to make him look good. That is our calling. That is our calling. You know, it's, it's, it's Greek word for glory is a word that means to show off. Okay? You, you, ladies, you ladies can identify with this. Look, it's, it's a, see, I, I tell my wife, I tell my wife we have to go somewhere, be somewhere at 7 o'clock. Okay? At 6 o'clock, she goeth before the mirror of her glory. She comes out with all this makeup and eye highlighter and eyeliner and rouge and curlers and rollers and hot irons and it's transformed before my very eyes. Well, it's time to go. My car's in the garage. My garage is attached to my house. She doesn't have to go outside to get in the car. She doesn't have to mess up her glory. She gets into the car, but wouldn't you know it, the very first thing she does is pull down the visor to check on her glory. We go to the elevator. We get inside the elevator in the building we're entering. Lord, have mercy if there's a mirror in the elevator. She's going to relook at her glory one more time. We get to the floor we're going on. She runs into some of her girlfriends. Where's the first place they go? To the powder room so they can talk about each other's glory. Well, guys, it's really okay when you get married for your wife to do that because the Bible says the woman is the glory of the man. So glorify me, baby. Make me look good. That's okay. the essence of glory. What God is asking is to put makeup on him. To put makeup on him. To beautify him. To expose him. So that it is clear where you are coming from. Listen, if homosexuals can go public and get the whole topography of the American uh, 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 American culture to now accept them as normative, then certainly we can go public for Jesus Christ. And so the issue is to be soft and light. If Christ comes back, you won't have to worry about it. But if he doesn't come back, you're going to have to raise kids in this world. And you're going to have to work in this world. And you're going to have to deal with the deterioration of this world. The question is, what kind of person are you going to be? My favorite program growing up was Superman. Boy, I love me some Superman. Now, as Clark Kent... He was a bumbling idiot. Lois Lane couldn't stand him. Jimmy Olsen didn't respect him. He's always getting pushed over. But boy, don't let him find a telephone booth. 
I'd be sitting down on the floor with my brother. The criminals of Metropolis would come out. The Daily Planet would cast the story. And somebody would say, where's Superman? Clark Kent would take off his glasses. Unhook his tie. I looked to my brother and say, there you go. My man would find a closet or a telephone booth. And in just a matter of minutes, he would emerge with a red and blue jumpsuit on. With this big S on his chest. He wasn't Clark Kent anymore. He's faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He goes streaking across the sky and they say it's a bird. Uh-uh. It's a plane. No, no. It's Superman. All of a sudden things changed in the culture. Not because sinners were any different, but because Superman had arrived. Now that he was on the scene, things changed. He would bend the nozzle of guns and catch bullets in his bare hand and break knives in half and discard criminals all because he belonged to a different order. He had arrived here from a place called Krypton. And having arrived here, he brought the power of another order to bear on this order so that this order got to see his order at work. Ladies and gentlemen, you belong to a whole nother order called heavenly places. You could belong to a whole different regime. And you have been allowed to be here to demonstrate God's power in history. And so what we've got to do is take off these old clothes, this old way of thinking and old way of operating and this secularistic mentality and take a trip to God's telephone booth of grace and emerge with our red and blue jumpsuits on with an S on our chest so that we are faster than speeding sin, more powerful than public unrighteousness, able to leave evil in a single bound so that when this world sees you coming, they say it's a bird. No, it's a plane. No, it's God's super saints having arrived on the scene. God bless you as you take back your world for God's glory.